If you have your Bible this morning, I, I want to invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is, is trying to model for us, especially in this chapter, what it looks like to relate to God as if he's a father, as if he's not some sort of genie in a bottle or some sort of puppet whose strings we pull or source, some sort of capricious uh, uh, slumlord who's, who, who has power over the things that matter but doesn't really care for us and is just looking out, out for himself. We don't want to relate to God in any of those ways. We want to relate to him as a father. And Jesus has given us example after example of what it would look like to actually treat him that way, to relate to him that way. And this morning, the section that Jesus comes to is a section on anxiety. The, claim, the, the, the statement that gets made several different times in, in the text we're going to read this morning is a command. Do not be anxious. And I'm going to go ahead and anticipate right now how that command is going to land on many of you. Uh, telling me not to be anxious can feel like telling me not to be bald. Like <laughs> blaming the victim here. Like, I'd love not to be anxious. I bet you would be too. There's no pleasure in it. It'd be great not to be anxious. But my anxiety happens to me. It's not something I choose. There's not even the pleasure of the kind of fleeting sort that Jesus has talked about earlier. So, you know, this, this text, this command not to do something or not to be something falls on the heels of lots of examples like this. In other cases, when Jesus had to warn them of something, it was something that, that really did offer some sort of pleasure to them. They might have been wooed into it, only to be disappointed later. So, you know, it, there's a kind of fleeting pleasure that comes from lashing out in anger at somebody. Sometimes that feels good. That's therapeutic. I can understand why you'd want to do that. Makes, so, so Jesus has to redirect. Don't be angry. I can understand a fleeting pleasure that comes from acquiring more and more treasure. Thinking of the text that Will preached for us last week. Don't, Jesus says, don't put your treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves steal it away. He has to tell us that because there is a little bit of pleasure that comes from stockpiling money, from getting more stuff. There's no pleasure in anxiety, though. That feels awful. No one would choose to be anxious. I mean, that's how you're responding to this command already. Maybe you struggle with anxiety. You feel debilitated by anxiety. Probably feel ashamed about your anxiety. It probably doesn't feel like a choice you make, does it? In some cases, it makes no sense to you. You can't track back the anxiety that you feel to any sort of cause, any sort of circumstance that's stirring it up in you. Sometimes it can feel like your very body is turning against you. What we're going to see in Jesus' words this morning is not a comprehensive solution to the problem of anxiety. It isn't a comprehensive explanation of where anxiety comes from or what it takes to fight it well. It isn't a blanket statement to just go and get over it. It isn't a guaranteed three-step program for overcoming it. It isn't any of those things. It doesn't address the physical effects and sometimes causes of the anxiety that you feel causes that come from the brokenness of the world and the effect of that brokenness on our bodies. And it doesn't account for the effects that trauma from your past may contribute to the anxiety that you feel today. Jesus isn't trying to be comprehensive in what he teaches in this text. 
What this text assumes, though, and this is where I'm going to really push you hard, to, to, to rope off from your minds all the reasons this text doesn't apply to you, all the reasons your anxiety is different from the anxiety others experience or those that Jesus is talking to would experience. I want to challenge you to rope off all the reasons it doesn't apply and see what this text assumes. That, and, it's, and it's this, that, that no matter what circumstances your anxiety battle involves, no matter how it manifests itself, no matter where it comes from in the past, a key part of the battle with anxiety for you and for everyone else who experiences it, which is to say, for all of us, right? A key part of that battle is always and certainly a battle of belief. Whatever else might be going on in your battle with anxiety, it is certainly and it is always, at least in part and centrally even, a battle of belief. Anxiety from whatever cause is always connected to what you believe. And truly overcoming anxiety, rather than merely suppressing it or numbing it, truly overcoming it is always going to involve new beliefs, truer beliefs. And what Jesus offers here, though it's not a comprehensive solution to the problem of anxiety, what Jesus offers in the text we're going to look at this morning is a powerful weapon in the fight against it. It isn't a comprehensive solution. It isn't a magical fix-all. It's a powerful weapon in the fight all of us have against anxiety. And it's always relevant, no matter who you are or what you're struggling with. I want to organize it as Jesus does. I'm going to give you three things to remember. Anxiety is always a battle in part of belief. I want to give you three things that you should remind yourself of to talk back to yourself when you're struggling with anxiety. These are all based on what Jesus said. Three things, three things to remember. Before I get there, I'd like to read the text for us. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here's the first thing Jesus would have us remember. When we're anxious, not for those who are anxious, but when we're anxious, because all of us struggle with it. Here's what Jesus, the first thing Jesus would have us to remember. He would have us remember that you can't control your future. You can't control your future. Now, I'm guessing some of you are responding out there. Well, of course I know I can't control my future. That's why I feel anxious. If I could control my future, if I could just pull all the strings and make sure it all falls right into line, then I wouldn't have anything to be anxious about. My my lack of control over the future is precisely the problem. I think Jesus' words tell us, not, not so fast, actually. Actually, anxiety is fed by the illusion that we have some control over the things that matter. But freedom comes from recognizing that we don't. Now, I know that's a big statement. It's going to need a lot of unpacking. And I want to help you see where I'm getting it from what Jesus says. Because it isn't obvious on the surface. I think, in fact, that the, the verses that we start with, uh, verse, 25 and 20, or verse 25 and 27, aren't obvious in their meaning on the surface. So I want to make sure you can see where I'm coming from, from Jesus' words. I want, you to, I want to guide you into the weeds a little bit here, okay, just for a few minutes so that you can see where I'm getting this. You can't control your future. It's key that we see that and embrace it as one step, one part of our battle against anxiety. Let me, let me lead you into where Jesus makes this case. The first thing we need to notice here, first detail about the passage, is the therefore that it starts with. Therefores are always key words. They mark transitions in, a, in an argument. Jesus has been saying one thing, now he's taking a next step. Because of what he's just said, therefore, this thing is true. So what is it? What's the connection between what he's about to say and what he's just said? Well, what he's just warned us about is making treasures out of the things of earth. That's the preceding passage. He says, don't don't put your heart on things that are just going to decay and ultimately be destroyed and stolen away by time, if not by thieves. Don't put your heart there. Don't serve money. You can't serve money and God at the same time. That's what he's just said. He's pushed back on our obsession with things that don't last. That was the previous section. And now because these things don't last and we can't treasure them and put our heart on them, therefore, what he's about to say. What he says here is the next step in a line of thought. So what's the next step? He's told us we shouldn't treasure things on earth. What's the therefore? I think in part, He's pointing us towards where anxiety comes from. He's pointing us to another form of putting your treasure on earth. Anxiety is a form of treasuring the things of earth. The focus in the last section was love for what you have, cherishing it as if you could hold on to it, trusting it and serving it as if it weren't just going to fall apart. This section on worry focuses on treasuring things you don't have yet but really want to have. Treasuring a future that you've imagined for yourself that you really love but that you aren't sure you can provide. 
comes from a view of your life and what you want from it and a desperate desire to see that future come to pass. I love the way Bonhoeffer put it. He comments on this text in The Cost of Discipleship that worry is always directed towards tomorrow. It's our securing things for tomorrow, Bonhoeffer says, that makes us so insecure today. So Jesus is partly pointing us to where anxiety comes from. It comes from a treasuring of a future that's not real yet. And an ambiguity about whether or not we can make it real. That's how it's connected to treasuring things that don't last. That's, what, that's how it's connected. This section on anxiety comes out of that section on treasure and not treasuring things of earth. But what's his suggestion to people who are struggling with anxiety, with a desire for a certain future? That's where he turns in verse 25. That's what comes after the therefore. He says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Don't be anxious, in other words, about material things like food and clothes, which have different connotations for people who might actually starve to death and not have anything to wear, freeze to death, than it does today, but... These things still fill our advertisements, don't they? You watch an average drama on CBS in the evenings or an average football game on a Sunday afternoon, and I don't know, I hadn't done the numbers, but a big chunk of those advertisements are going to be about food or they're going to be about clothes, aren't they? Jesus says, don't be anxious about material things like food or clothes. And his reason why we shouldn't be anxious about those things is a kind of rhetorical question. He says, are not... Isn't, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's he getting at? Isn't life more important than the food that sustains it? Isn't the body more important than the clothes you put on it? I think what he's saying is that you're worrying about things that are less important than life itself. You should be more concerned about life and having it than about what's in it. More concerned about the body and what will happen to it than what you cover it with. How's that a response to anxiety? I, th- I think verse 27 is the key. Here's another rhetorical question. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? What's he saying? Isn't he saying that all of your worry about these material things like food and clothes isn't affecting one way or another where you ultimately end up. It can't add even an hour to your life. You're focusing on something that isn't unimportant, but isn't nearly as important as the thing you're neglecting. You guys have heard the old cliche about rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic? You guys know that that cliche? Uh, As an analogy for us tinkering with our lives, thinking we can make a big difference to our life when when actually some other huge problem isn't affected at all by the things that we're trying to do. Imagine somebody on the Titanic going down in the ocean in the freezing waters, caring about whether or not the, the deck chairs are arranged in a nice circle where there's good sight lines for everyone to see and look at one another. Well, it just doesn't matter compared to the fact that the ship is going down. So if you think about that analogy for what Jesus is saying, I think... What he's saying is that you're worrying about food and drink and clothes when these things are to life and the body what deck chairs are to the Titanic. No amount of worrying about them can affect your lifespan at all. You can die with a belly full of caviar 
wrapped in an Armani suit or the latest tattered threads down at Urban Outfitters, whatever your style is. You can, you can die with a full belly, high-quality food wrapped in wonderful clothes, but still end up dead. I think that's what Jesus is saying. So in other words, what he's saying is, not as a comprehensive case, but as a first step, remember that whatever control you might think you have, whatever control your anxiety might be wanting to have over what happens in your life is at best a kind of rearranging of deck chairs on a Titanic. Ultimately, you can't control your future. The gig is up. What matters most is not on you, and it can't be. And I think what he's saying is that there's a kind of freedom from accepting it. No matter how much you worry, you won't be able to control matters of life and death. So worry is useless. It's a waste of emotional energy. It's a poison that kills our joy and is profoundly unrealistic. We're anxious when we don't realize how little control we actually have. Now, so far, his point is true, wise, commonsensical even, but not very encouraging, is it? Let's just be honest. He's basically telling us we're going down with the ship, so we should stop worrying about it and just accept it. That doesn't feel very good to hear. It certainly doesn't solve my anxiety problem by itself. It's true and important, but not exactly good news. The fact that body and life are more important than food and clothes doesn't mean that food and clothes don't matter. In fact, I think the, that they matter is a big reason Jesus has to go here because he's just said things like, don't serve money, serve God instead. And I think a legitimate question to ask about that is, if I don't serve money... How can I be sure that I'll have what my family needs to survive? I'm responsible. God's called me to provide for my family. How can I make sure they have what they need if I'm not stressing or serving money, if I'm not at some level treasuring things of earth? If I take you up on your claim, Jesus, on your call, how can I be sure I'll have what I need? Those are legitimate questions. And that's why Jesus' argument next is so sweet. It's the main point in the text. It takes up the most space. It's most of the verses we just read are all contributing to this second point. The second thing you should remember anytime you feel anxious, not as a magical solution, but as a weapon in the battle, remember that your father controls your future. So remember that you can't control your future. Just accept it. Give it up. Then next, the really good news is, remember that your father does control your future. Though anxiety isn't healthy, the details of life are not unimportant. They're not only important to you, they're important to God. It's it's not helpful to worry, but the good news is that it's also not necessary to worry. Because you have a father who cares even more than you do, that you have what you need. And who knows even more than you do what you need. Look at how Jesus makes this case. I'm just going to walk you through it quickly. Starts with some more questions. And he likes to use, sometimes he likes to use these rhetorical questions. He asks them something that makes the answer obvious. 
Look at the birds of the air, he says. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't stockpile. They aren't responsible for the berries that they eat or for the, I mean, what else do birds eat? Corn, seeds, I don't know, worms. They aren't responsible for those things, they're just there. The Father just feeds them. And don't you matter more to him than birds? I mean, birds are great, but they're birds. Then he moves on to the the lilies of the field. Verse 28. Why are you anxious about what you're going to wear? About your clothes? Think of the lilies. And really the word is just wildflowers. Think of these wildflowers that just grow where they grow. I mean, nobody even cultivates them. They don't even have somebody who's who's laboring over them with a careful watering schedule. Just think of the, the, the lilies of the field. Wildflowers. The ones, think of the ones that are in the middle of the interstate, you know, if you're lucky enough to be driving down a stretch of interstate that has them. Think of those. They don't contribute at all to their appearance. Their beauty has nothing to do with them. As Jesus puts it, they don't toil. They don't spin. They don't make their clothes. They don't spend a whole lot of time getting ready in front of a mirror, making sure their clothes look just right. They just are. And even Solomon, who to them would have been like this, on his own tier of fashion excellence, even Solomon in all his glory can't compare to one of these flowers of the field. And I know that might sound a little bit like, like hyperbolic, but it's really true. I mean, haven't you ever paid attention, really close attention to a flower, to the intricacy of its patterns and designs? If you, if you don't just look at it from a distance as just a big sea of color, if you actually pick one up, and examine each petal, and you look at the patterns that are on it, and the richness of that color, that the best we can do is manipulate chemicals to try to reproduce it. But it's modeled there. It's, it's at its purest and most deep and beautiful in these flowers. Those colors, they didn't have anyone dye them. They just came that way. Now, if, if God clothes the grass like this, Jesus said, Grass that's alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? The children that he loves so dearly? Jesus sums himself up in verse 32. He's restated his main claim. Don't be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. And then he says, this is kind of a summary point. He contrasts, once again, the way the Gentiles relate to their gods and the way that God's children should relate to him. See that in verse 32? The Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles are fixated on the material things and whether they'll have them. A Gentile was no atheist. It's just that they had no special relationship with the gods they believed in. Their gods were free agents. Their gods were mercenaries. They'd perform for those who won them over. This is what they thought. This is how the Gentiles thought of their gods. They were powerful in one sense, but in another sense, they were just like puppets whose strings you worked hard to pull correctly in your own favor. The Gentiles thought of their gods as as puppets that if you pulled the string in just the right way, would do just the thing you were hoping it would do. These gods aren't for you. They're not paying attention to your life. 
They know only what you tell them. They do for you only what you're able to convince them or pay them to do. They're tools, maybe, for getting the life you want, but those tools are only as useful as your skill in using them. That's the way the Gentiles thought about their gods. That's the way the Gentiles sought out the material things of the world. And Jesus is saying, you can't be with me and interact with the world the same way as a Gentile would. There's got to be some difference. The way that you interact with the world has got to look like you think of God as your father. Not a puppet. Not a genie. Not someone who's got to be controlled by just the right actions. But a father who knows what you need, who loves you enough to give it to you, and who is waiting for you to ask him and depend upon him. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all, Jesus says. The future is no threat when it's controlled by such a father. But let's be honest. Here we, here we need to uh, address a really important objection. We all know that not all birds get fed, right? Some birds do die because their food supply has dried up. Entire species go extinct. Because they don't have what they need. And not all Christians have enough to eat. Not all of them have good clothes to wear. This can't be read in in the grand scheme of things, in, in light of the rest of the Bible, and in light of what we experience in life. We can't read what Jesus is saying here as a promise that God will always give us what we need to survive this life. Much less what we want out of this life. So the question is, how can I trust that God is good if the outcome might be bad? How can you defeat worry in a world that is profoundly not okay? Those two questions are questions that were framed by Josh Tierney this week while we were waiting for the outcome of Harper's surgery to remove that cancerous tumor from her little body. So we spent most of Thursday together at the hospital with other friends and members of the family that gathered around. It was a long and complicated surgery. It was an all-day thing. At one point, Josh and I went down to the cafeteria together for coffee, and I asked him about this text because I was getting ready to preach it, trying to think ahead towards how we were going to talk about this together today. So I asked him, how does Jesus claim that we shouldn't be anxious? Land on you right now. Three or four hours into a complicated surgery that's got three or four more hours left to go that might not end well for your daughter. Those weren't the words I used, but he knew the implications. How does this text land on you? And I asked him if it was okay for me to share with you guys the encouraging things he had to say. His answer was that you just have to believe in God's goodness because God hasn't promised a good outcome. You have to believe that God is good because you can't be sure that the outcome will seem good. In other words, you can't judge him by the outcome, whereas he's good if he gives me the outcome that I want so badly. 
you must judge the outcome in the light of his goodness. I may not understand it. I may hate it. I may grieve deeply over it. But I can trust his goodness in it. But how can you trust his goodness like that? And Josh asked that question himself. How can you trust his goodness and not attach it to whether he gives you what you're hoping for? Josh's answer there was the most encouraging of all. He said simply that you just have to trace it back to the cross. The cross, as he put it, is the ultimate outcome. The cross is the ultimate outcome. The cross is the outcome in the light of which all other outcomes are viewed. It's at the cross that we see clearly how God views his children. And it's in that light that we live through all of the other things that make no sense to us. We have to see, in other words, what Jesus says here in Matthew 6 in light of what Jesus will do at the end of Matthew. We have to see what he says in Matthew 6 about anxiety and about trusting God, even though we know that things will happen to us that we don't want to happen, that seem like God is not providing for us. Even though we know that stuff happens, we have to view what Jesus says in Matthew 6 in light of what Jesus does at the end of Matthew. Jesus doesn't go into details here about how to square up what he's saying about God always providing for his own with what we experience as a lack of God's provision. Jesus doesn't go into those details. He's not trying to have that conversation here. We have to read what he does say in light of what he's about to do. I think it helps us to see Jesus' logic here in the light of Paul's logic in Romans chapter 8. It's the same logic. Jesus here says, look what God provides for the lilies of the field that don't matter anything compared to you. For the birds of the air that are, man, they're great, they're beautiful, fun to watch, but they don't matter compared to you. Now, look, at, look at what he does for those who matter nothing compared to you. And then imagine what he'll do to take care of you. Paul uses the same logic, but with all the oomph that comes from living on this side of the cross. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, How can God, who would not spare his own son, not with him freely give us all things? Friends, the gospel message is not that God will give you what you want out of this life. It isn't even that God will protect you from deep pain in the brokenness of this world. In fact, he won't. The gospel message is that even though in our sin, every one of us deserves to die. God has loved us so much that he sent his son to die instead of us. That in Christ on the cross, every sin of every person who ever trusted him was paid for in full. And his resurrection from the dead is a down payment on a world he's promised us where none of this sadness will have any place. The gospel is not a promise that you won't endure sadness along the way. It's a promise that that sadness won't be the end and that you can trust him because he's already proven himself to you once and for all in the cross. It's the cross or nothing. There is no way for you to endure a life of faith as a Christian through the suffering that will come for every one of you, unless you see everything that happens to you 
in the light of what God gave for you in Jesus. That's your only hope. We have nothing else to offer you. But Jesus' logic here prepares you for it. That's logic that'll work for you, for every one of you, if you'll trust him with it. And our anxiety, for whatever else contributes to it, as complicated and as individual as it is for every person who's in here, it always involves, in part, a forgetfulness in us of the truth that the one who controls our future is a father who knows us, who loves us, and who gave Jesus for us. So we remember, when we're anxious, not as a magical cure-all, we remember and redirect the one who controls the future I can't control is to me a father who loves me. There's one last thing. One last weapon in the battle against anxiety that Jesus points us to. This one's positive. So the other two were negative. They were saying, he was saying, don't be anxious. Don't focus on this. Not this. Okay? And now he's switching to, but this. Don't think about these things, but instead, think about this. This is in verse 33. It's at the very end. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's switching from what not to do to what we should do. Don't look over there, look over here. Now, now often, we take this verse out of context, I think. And, and it's okay that we do that. It's a great standalone verse. It's really important that we seek after the kingdom in all things. It speaks to all of our jobs and all of our relationships and all of our checking accounts. We should seek God first. He should not be something that we work in when we can. It should never be something that we set aside in favor of other priorities. Everything should be evaluated based on whether or not we're, we're loving God and what he wants more than anything else. But it, this verse, as well as it stands on its own, it has a context. It falls in a, in, a, in a text about anxiety. Jesus is trying to help people not be anxious. And in order to help them not be anxious, he's reminding them to seek the kingdom. So how does seeking the kingdom help us not be anxious? I think what he's telling us is that when we're anxious, when those thoughts intrude, we've got to take them captive and redirect them. And when anxiety is a lot more complicated than thoughts that come into your head, that there are instinctive bodily responses, a churning in your gut, a difficulty breathing, all, all sorts of symptoms that aren't just mental. So don't mishear me saying it's just a matter of switching your beliefs. I'm saying it always involves switching your beliefs. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to here. One of the weapons here is to remember that the kingdom is your future. One of the things you use to fight your anxiety when those thoughts intrude is to take them captive and swing them over from whatever future outcome you're locked in on. Something bad you want to avoid, something good you really want to provide. Whatever future outcome has got you worried. You want to switch from that outcome to the kingdom and seek it first. You could almost say, worry about the kingdom. Don't worry about your life. Worry first about his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, what does that mean? 
focusing on the kingdom God is building and righteousness, a life that pleases him. I think that's a great thing for us all to talk about together through our friendships, our lunch today, over conversations in summer book studies, wherever we find ourselves. But I just want to give you a a couple of things you can write down and then ponder. Rather than wondering about the future, focus on the opportunity you've got today for investing in the kingdom and pleasing God. That means shifting focus in a couple of ways. It means shifting from what is possible, which is where most of our thoughts align, right? We think about possible futures that we really love or really want to avoid. Shifting focus from what is possible to what is promised, okay? Not possible, but promised. That's what it would mean to seek first his kingdom. Because Jesus has told us the kingdom of God is here. And it's coming. It's here already. It's really coming in the future. And it's as certain as the power of the God who made heaven and earth. So there's a world in which there is no sadness, no death, no sin, in which all of us relate to one another as if God really is who he claims to be. That world's coming. We'll be anxious as long as our hearts belong to what is possible. We'll overcome anxiety to whatever extent our hearts belong to what is promised. Here's another way to put, another thing you can write down. Pretty much the same point, but a slightly different phrasing. When we're anxious, Jesus has called us to seek the kingdom first and his righteousness. Another way to, to, to do that is to shift our focus from what we want, which is usually where anxiety is, is, is all tied up with, something we want from life, to a focus on what God wants. And that's not mysterious. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's always talking in part about what he laid out at the beginning of this sermon in the Beatitudes. That's where he started profiling what the kingdom is like. So what we know from God is that he wants a people who are poor in spirit, who know that they don't have what it takes to micromanage their lives. They can't do it. They're giving it up. They're poor in spirit. They're humble. What he wants is a people who are meek, who don't have to always be defending themselves, who are willing to be mistreated by others and respond with grace. People who are merciful, who respond to relationships that are difficult and maybe even hurtful towards you with mercy rather than with judgment. People who are peacemakers, who, who don't ask, how can I make sure I'm defending what's mine, but ask, how can I bring peace to this situation? How much of our anxiety ultimately is bound up with our relationships? It's a a huge percentage of it, isn't it? Now imagine what it would look like to seek first God's kingdom in relationships that are difficult. If when our churning, our anxiety about people in our lives that we have trouble relating to, were redirected towards what would it look like for me to be meek towards them? How can I be today merciful towards them? How today, right now, not in the future, but right now, where can I seek peace in this relationship? Look at the Beatitudes in your anxiety. Look at the Beatitudes and ask, right here today, not tomorrow, right here today, what are my opportunities for seeking these things? How can I use what's given to me today to serve God's kingdom today, to seek righteousness that pleases him today? That's the question Jesus would have us to ask. And it's a powerful weapon in our battle against anxiety. Friends, there's no cure-all. I've said that so many times today. I hope you hear me. I'm not trying to reduce your anxieties to something that you should just get over. Jesus isn't doing that. 
Jesus is spending this much time on it and going into this much detail because he knows how big of a deal it is, how complicated it is, and how much beyond, how far beyond it is any of us to be able to overcome it by ourselves. All we're saying is that you're fooling yourself if you think you'll ever get over it without replacing beliefs that aren't true with beliefs that are. And Jesus is pointing you that way this morning. Let's pray together that God will help us. Father, we want to live lives that are true, according to beliefs that are true. And we want to have the freedom and joy that your children have been promised, both by the way you've always cared for us in the past and by the fact that you've given Jesus for us. We want to honor you and glorify you and your goodness of your, of your work for us by the way we trust it, by the way we trust you with everything else that's going on in our lives. So we pray that you would help us to fight mental battles as well as physical battles against our anxiety, that you would help us to be wise, to see what we need to about our fight, our struggle, but to always bring Jesus into it, to, to look for the ways he is relevant to us and what we're facing. Protect us from exhaustion with that battle. Protect us from feeling like it's nothing but cliche talk. Protect us from believing other solutions will ultimately pay off in a way that Jesus can't. And I pray that you would give us the ability to see just how valuable and powerful these, these reminders can be in our lives. It'll take your spirit to do it. This is not a magical solution that we can control. It's supernatural when it works. So help us, please, Father. Deliver us from our worry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.